Lord is good. Amen. amen. I said the Lord is good. Amen. 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 It is good to be here with you. My name is Jason Cook. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, man, I'm so excited to see you all. I want to extend and say a hearty and happy Mother's Day to all of you mamas out there. Yep. To mamas and to grandmamas and to those here who are loved as mamas. But on today, we also remember those who today's not the most happy of days. We remember those who this day is a day of loss. It's a reminder of what uh, never was or is not yet. Uh, many women, uh, many of my friends indeed, see Mother's Day as inc increasingly a sad day where somehow they feel broken that the Lord has not, um, in his goodness in many ways, brought fruit to their wombs. Um, we remember those who have lost moms, those who have adopted mothers and all mother wounds. We remember those who are fostering. Like, uh, if you're here, maybe this day's hard for you. Um, if you're here, maybe this day's hard and tough and painful. Like, we see you and we love you and uh, we are grateful for you. And we as a church, uh, we are in this with you. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one mourns, we all mourn. Amen? Amen. Uh, this morning, uh, before we go any further, I just need to let y'all know that what we're about to share in this room, this is an in-the-house conversation, right? I don't know what it was like for y'all growing up, but there would be times when we would have in-house conversations. Um, and I just want you to know that every sermon I write, every article I write, um, every word that I give from the time that I was brought here as a pastor until the Lord takes me home or calls me somewhere else will be for you. It will be for us, for our church family. So for those of you who are present here and those of you who are online with us and you call this place home, uh, the next 35 to 40 minutes, this is for you. Everyone else who happens to hear this, just they're on the outside looking in. Um, and the reason why this message is for you is because what we have in front of us is a great challenge. There are many of you who listened and heard the news of us moving to June 6th with no social distancing on the bottom, with masks being optional. You heard that and you rejoiced, right? Um, and yeah, in, in many ways for good reason, right? There are also others of, here who, others of you here, when you heard that, you incredibly became skeptical and fearful, and you thought to yourself, are these people nuts? And, and so we just need to back up and like understand that one of the reasons why all of this is so hard is because unless you were alive 127 years ago, right, 110 so years ago, like we've never been through a pandemic before. So all of this is new. It's also difficult to make decisions when you've got medical experts at the highest levels who disagree on both the severity and the scope of this disease. You've got all of us who have different personal experiences with the disease. And then cable news doesn't make it any worse or any better, right? You get some people who are so obsessed with COVID that they don't know what a post-COVID life will be like in terms of making money, so they want to continue to talk about COVID. At the same time, you've got a, a cable news who wants to downplay and, and, and sort of soften the blow and sort of um, uh, not live up to like how many people are actually really affected by this disease. 
Then you've got folks who want and desire to wear a mask because they are either immunocompromised, they live with people who are, they want to keep the people who are safe, and that's a personal decision they make. And there are many folks who look at them and they say all sorts of not-so-nice things about them. But then those people who see masks as being not only a sort of personal infringement upon their rights, but being unnecessary that they in their conscience don't feel like they need to wear one, those people who are wearing a mask all the time can look at those people with suspicion, right? And then it's like kind of crazy, like you wear your mask to go into a restaurant, you sit down, you take that joint off, you eating and you drinking and you talking and laughing and gallivanting and carrying around as a hundred other people are inside of a room. And then you walk out and put your mask on and you're walking out like it's weird, Right? But, but here's the thing. We're in family together. We're in a community together. And we don't all think the same about this. And you know what? That's good. It is a good thing. Because what it does is it stretches us to think beyond our own experiences and to consider people who think a little bit differently than we do. It's really, really good, but it's also really hard. So here's the opportunity, and here's what we're asking. We're asking that you would consider, for the sake of your neighbor, to either, one, wear a mask, consider wearing a mask out of love and kindness for your neighbor, but also, if you walk in here and someone doesn't have a mask on, to not think in your heart, or in your mind that this person is out of their mind. We have an opportunity here to not look upon one another with suspicion, but to regard one another with love and with charity and with grace. Um, In Christ, right, in Christ, Paul talks about this, in Christ you are free. So I want you to know that you are free to wear a mask and you are free to not wear a mask on June 6th. And what that freedom brings is it brings us the opportunity to really truly see our citizenship as being primarily in heaven, not of an earthly kingdom, secondarily to the country we live in, which I tend to think is the greatest country on earth. But when it comes to our freedoms as believers and as siblings, our allegiance to being citizens of heaven is first. And what Paul often asks us is to lay down our freedoms for the sake of our neighbors. And in many ways, how we serve one another in this time and this season, as we'll see here in a moment, will be a testament to the world concerning who we think God is and what he's like. And because we're different, and because at the end of the day, our argument over masks and the like are really not over a mask, we've got a heart issue. We've got a heart issue. So, so we're going to take a break from this series in John, and we're going to jump to Matthew 5. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, meet me in Matthew 5. And the heart issue that we need to uncover is why do we enjoy our hate and our anger so much? I'm going to go ahead and warn you, this sermon is going to be a whole lot like broccoli and llama beans. For those of you who don't like vegetables, some of y'all, I've got a friend who's a, a whole man, and he only eats chicken tenders, hamburgers, meat, and bun only, and french fries. He's a grown man. 
If that's you, no judgment. You are loved and welcome here. This sermon this morning is going to be, it's, 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 it's going to be a lot like the, the vegetables this morning. As we interrogate why we love our hate and our anger so much. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. When you get there, say, oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold on, brother. All right, just one second. I think some of y'all just like saying that. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Allow me to take a second and welcome all of you who are guests here with us this morning. Uh, those visiting and joining us online who are maybe first time with us and those in the building, we are grateful that you're here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 reads, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Yes, for what you give us. But Father, teach us more and more to love you for who you are. That your person your being, your essence, your very existence is a gift. More noteworthy than anything that this life has to offer. And would you lead and guide us through the words on these pages by your spirit into a place where we get to see the reality of who we are in stark contrast against the surpassing worth and beauty of Jesus Christ himself. So, Spirit of God, would you come and tell us about ourself and then lead us graciously into the light wherein we not only think rightly about you, but we act rightly to our neighbors. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can, can I be honest this morning? It's a rhetorical question. I'm going to be honest anyway. I like my hatred. I like my hatred. And I like my anger. In fact, uh, from the time I wake up until the time that I go to bed, I'm angry multiple times a day at multiple different objects, at multiple different people for multiple different reasons. I feel really comfortable in my anger. I feel really warm in my anger. I also feel incredibly righteous in my anger. Now, I may be up here by myself, but if I had to go out on a limb, I would say that it's actually probably true of most of us. 
Some cultures are more expressive than others and that passion might look like anger. Other cultures more stoic than others, their lack of emotion might seem to be more mature, but if you could only see what's going on in their head. I tell people all the time that uh, one of the ways that I know how much I need Jesus is by taking inventory of my thoughts while driving in traffic. And to my great shame, I murdered three people on my way to church. I like my anger. And part of why I like it is because people hurt us. But more than people hurting us, they hurt us without us ever knowing them. And we live in a day and a time where a very idea or ideology can be so contrary to our worldview that it feels like they're our enemy. And so what do we learn? If you were to look at the previous pericope, at the very, uh, the very previous passage, Jesus is teaching on retaliation. He says, if, uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, give them the left. And I'm like, Jesus, you ain't grow up in my hood. Because if you grew up where I was from, if somebody slapped you on the face, it was time to roll. It was time to shoot them hands. It was trying to give somebody a two-piece. Or it was time to engage in a fist fight. That's probably a better way to say that, right? So, so, so when I consider Jesus' words here, I also don't like them. There, there are parts of the Bible that I love that speak to the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and the acceptance of Christ. But when it requires something of me that I cannot in my strength give, I don't like it. There are aspects of the Bible that are hard to understand. And there are aspects of the Bible that are perspicuous. They are easy to understand. They are hard to obey. This is one of them. I've got a few points for us this morning, but I want to walk us through the text using a a few hooks that we can kind of hang our minds on as we move through Matthew chapter 5. And the first one that we get from verse 43 is this, beware the seductive sensations of syncretism. Beware the seductive sensations of syncretism. In chapter 5, verse 43, we get introduced to this statement. Jesus says, you have heard it said. All throughout the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is combating these, these uh, teachings of these rabbis that have been false or wrong or misconstrued. So Jesus, as he's walking, he's teaching and he's walking and he gets by the Sea of Galilee and he walks up on a hill and he sits down and 10,000 or so people behind him fan out along the sea to listen to this rabbi teach. And as they listen to this rabbi teach, Jesus sits down and around him are flowers and bugs and there's seagulls and other birds flying through the air. And as he's surveying all that's around him, he looks at a lily and he says, do you see this lily? It's clothed in splendor and yet your father in heaven loves you more than this. Hearing the seagull squawk overhead as they're flying over and around the water. And as they're squawking, Jesus looks up and he points and he says, do you see these birds? They have nests. They lack for nothing. And yet your father in heaven loves you more than they do. 
And he's teaching, but what he's teaching on is radically different. You see, most rabbis would have their own sort of reading of the Talmud and the Torah, and they would take it and they would put a bit of a spin on it, and they would have their followers that they would teach. Well, here's Jesus as a rabbi sitting on this mountain, and he not only have his own spin on the Talmud and the, and the Torah, but he's got a whole different new message. He's got a message where he's not taking new wine and pouring it into old wineskins. The reason you don't pour new wine into old wineskins is because old wine and old wineskins, the leather is set, it's firm. And if you put new wine in old wineskins after that wine cooks and it ferments and the gases expand in a non-stretchable bag, it bursts the leather and spills the wine. So Jesus says, I'm not coming to put old wine in old wine or new wine and old wine skins. I'm coming to put new wine in new wine skins. I'm not coming to repurpose Judaism. I'm coming to give you something that's completely new. So, so he comes and he, we find him, we pick him up in verse 43 when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Now that's good. That's Bible. That's Leviticus 19.11. We like that. That is good, right? When the rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus uh, he says, you know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should love your neighbor as, as yourself. There is no greater commandment in all the law. And like, we look at that and we're like, cool, we should love our neighbor. And then the next piece, and hate your enemy. Now, I like that part. That's also a window into my own wickedness. But nowhere in the New Testament do we actually see those words, you shall hate your enemy. What they did is they cherry-picked parts of the Old Testament, smashed them all together to get this piece here, where they they took this made-up piece and they merged it with this good biblical piece to create a syncretistic teaching of the Old Testament. Syncretism. It is the melding of something that is orthodox with something that is unorthodox to create something new. It's you take the Bible and you mix the Bible with a, uh, a different agenda to create something categorically different. You, you take the Bible and you mix it with some new ageism, or you take the Bible and you mix it uh, with some ethnic supremacy. You take the Bible and you mix it with partisan politics. You take the gospel and you mix it with your own ideas. And what it does is it doesn't lead people to encounter the God of the Bible. It leads people to encounter a God that we've made up. And it's, it, it feels good to do this. Now, 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 to give these men some credit, these Jewish leaders probably felt justified in the way they read the law, having a more strict understanding of the law. But what Jesus comes is he comes to blow it up. He says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, love your enemies. I don't like that. I don't. And then as if it couldn't get any more controversial and all the way up in my Kool-Aid, he says, and pray for your enemies. Here's the point. Here's the point. Second point. We declare our deepest allegiances and how we act toward those in opposition to us. We declare our deepest allegiances and how we act toward those in opposition to us. So, so let me ask you a question. Who's in opposition to you? Don't say any names. Perhaps that's a person. 
Perhaps that's an organization. Perhaps that's an entire group of people. And here's how you know someone is your enemy. Your enemy is anyone who wishes harm or works harm against you. It's anyone who wishes harm or works harm against you. The very people that we're taught from a very young age, yeah, you can turn the other cheek, but like you just, you need to be done with them. The folks that we see from a distance and they're these philosophical people, they're these imaginary people from a distance and we're like, okay, it's cool. You can be over there in your space. I'm going to be over here in my space. As long as we ain't got to cross paths, we're good, right? There's only one part of problem with that. As a Christian, there's one word here that throws a foil in your plan and that word is love. Love is not only in empty sentimentality. And if we learned anything from the DC Talk album of the early 90s, we learned that love is a what? Verb. Which means that the imperative to love is to actively seek out the good of your enemy. Yeah. To love is to actively pursue the good of those who wish harm against you or work harm against you. To use the words of Dr. Craig Bomberg, look at it with me. He says this, the true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat or persecute them. So here's the imperative. Next slide, love your enemies. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear that word, you hear that phrase, love your enemies, that seems next to impossible. And I, and I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. You see, uh, Chuck in a truck down the street can hate his enemies. Chuck don't know Jesus. Chuck's never been encountered with Jesus. Chuck don't know no better. But in the body of Christ, we do. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because I want you to think about what a mask is. Our arguments and our disagreements aren't over a mask. They're much deeper than that. They're not even ideological or some sort of theology that we hold. It's deeper than that. Our issue is with our heart. We have a heart issue. If we were to only look at this mask issue on its surface, we would be like doctors in the UK. Doctors in the UK, uh, I was talking to William Rainey last week. He says, doctors in the UK, you go to the doctor, you're like, hey, doc, my throat hurts. Doctors like, tell me about it. Well, it hurts. When I cough, it hurts. When I swallow, it hurts. And that doctor's like, all right, cool. Here's uh, 20 pills. Go take these pills and call me back. Now, like, you go home and they, doctors never listen to a heart never pulled out one of them popsicle sticks and almost uh, made you throw up on it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They never took out the little light with the thing and they put it in your ear. I don't know what the this is called. They never took out the stethoscope and listened to nothing. They just simply took your word for it, gave you medicine, and sent you on your way. Now, what happens if they misdiagnose you? Well, you can just come back and get some more medicine and you can come back and, and you know, get, get, get a refill on whatever you need. As long as, I'm not the, as long as I'm the pastor here, 
That's not how we're going to operate. We won't operate based on superficial diagnoses to problems that have roots that are much deeper. And the tension here is this doesn't feel good. Heart surgery does not feel good. But if you want to live, it's necessary. Jesus is trying to get to the heart here by showing them that the The radical way to live in a new kingdom with a new citizenship is not according to the patterns of the world. The world is lost and they're going to always look like that. I need you to reflect my character. So he says, love your enemies. Again, Blomberg is helpful here when he says this. Whatever emotions may be involved, love here refers to, watch this, generous, warm, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. That hurts. I don't want to be that to my enemies. I want to be cold. I want to be indifferent. I want to be standoffish. And I don't want to work for their good. I want to work for their destruction. But that is not the way of Jesus. R.T. France is helpful again as he says the following. The disciples' attitude to religious persecution must go beyond non-retaliation to a positive love. But an exclusive application to cases of religious persecution would introduce the very legalism Jesus repudiates. There is no one the disciple need not love. Love is an active pursuing of the good of our enemies. And why is this important? Look at the very next verse in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Watch this. The authenticity or the legitimacy of your faith is found in how you love your enemy. Not in what you look like, how many times you come to church or how much money you give, though all that's good. The legitimate litmus test to your authenticity as a believer is how you not only think about but regard your enemy. But Jesus goes a step beyond love your enemy. He talks about praying for him. But before we get into this next part, let me, let me drop this from Corey Tim Boom on you, that great uh, woman missionary to the East. She says, you never so touch the oceans of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. Corey, I need you to get off my toes. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies for in your love, you so prove that you are a child of God. But then he shows you just what love looks like. And he says the next clause, he says, pray for those who persecute you. Mm. So so, so wait a minute, Jesus. You mean to tell me I'm supposed to actually pray for them? And Jesus like, yeah, pray for them. But, But not like the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms where it's like, Lord, let them dash their foot against the rock and smash their teeth on the ground. Let them wake up and their bank account is on zero and overdraft, right? We, we had these petty prayers. Lord, let, let them wake up and there's like, um, their mailbox is on fire. Lord, let them wake up. I hope they get a flat tire at 8.30 in the morning on I-85 or 400. Like, Lord, in your name I pray, amen. <laughs> right? To love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you is to actively pray for their good. 
uh, it is the most Christ-like thing that we can do. Because what do we see Jesus doing on the cross of Calvary? Hung high, arms stretched wide, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Praying for those who persecute him. I imagine being with Peter and John in the prison after they've just been locked up for sharing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're in the prison singing Hillsong. In that thing, worshiping. John Newton is all up in that mud. Why? Because they counted it an honor to be persecuted because of the name. And what would, it, what would it be that drove Paul to, be, to move from Thessalonica to Colossae to Philippi to Ephesus to Galatia and all throughout the east? And what would propel him to allow himself to be flogged and stoned and beaten and nearly set on fire and exiled from every city? Why would he persist if he did not see himself as the enemy that Christ prayed for, for his soul to be ransomed? And that's the point. You and I are enemies, and some of us have forgotten. I just need you to remember, remember the hour when you first believed. When in your desperation, you called upon the name of Jesus to save your soul. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember the encounter with the living God where you knew there was no hope for you unless this God would save you? Do you remember? Do you remember the tears of being moved deep within yourself, knowing that you were going to hell, doused in gasoline and on scholarship if it wasn't for this man named Jesus? Do you remember? Because the point here is if you remember if you remember what that was like, then I need you to see that I'm trying to do that for others through you. Jason, you were my enemy running from me and I chased you down to get you. Uh, that's good, Lord. I'll be, I'll be faithful. Um, uh, about seven years ago, I was playing in a flag football game with some friends of mine and uh, my wife has this rule for me that I'm not allowed to play uh, extracurricular sports with normal people um, because those people tend to get hurt. So um, I just happened to sneak in a game of flag football one day and um, uh, I walk out and I'm on offense and the first snap I blow by this guy, I catch like a 70 yard pass and I'm to the house, right? Well, the next possession, I am on defense, and y'all, in high school, I played linebacker, and I loved it. I hadn't played it in a while. So I'm sitting back there, and I'm playing linebacker, and I'm having so much fun. Like, I'm having so much fun that I'm giggly. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that much fun before, but I'm like, I'm like a kid, and I'm giggling. I'm like chasing people down, and I'm giggling, and I'm laughing, and I'm just having the time of my life. Well, there's a friend of mine, Matthew Bowerman. He's like 6'9". And he's lined up as a receiver, and I drop back, and I drop back, and he catches the ball in front of me. He's taking off running in front of me. So I take off running after him, and I am having so much fun. I am giggling and laughing until I run to catch him, and I grab his flag, and he turns around, and he says, that is the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> All I could hear was this 
big, huge man giggling as he's chasing me. But isn't that the joy that Jesus has in his chasing of us? As he pursues us with delight, we who are enemies, he now comes to save us. And Jesus says this love will be evidence of of you worshiping me. And then he says, here's why else I'm calling you to this. We aren't to love our enemies because somehow our enemies have something they can give us. Nor are we only to love people who are just like us because the people who are just like us have something to give us. But we are to love indiscriminately. Why? Look at verse 46, 45 rather. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Mm. God's common grace means that he rains goodness on the just and the unjust. Children of God don't get special or preferential treatment in avoiding suffering, nor are they blessed unduly beyond God's own sovereign hand because of what they do. There is blessing to following and obeying God, yes, but we are not inherently blessed or more prosperous unless God were to say yes to us. In the same way, suffering hits all of us, and we are not, we are not We are not to treat our enemies and our suffering different than we treat those whom we love. And then he goes on to say, for if you greet those, uh, only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? In other words, like, how are you any different than these other people who don't know Jesus and yet still with kindness treat them with kindness? How are you any different? Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Next point. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. He's getting that. Practice what you preach. If you say you love me, show it. If you say you love me, show it. Because ultimately, here's the thrust of this sermon, that Jesus is challenging us to become more like him. Uh, So today is Mother's Day. Uh, Happy Mother's Day, baby. I love you. Um, I knew I was going to be out of town today, so I uh, went to uh, one of my favorite places on earth yesterday, uh, Costco. And um, I spend way too much money at that place. And I bought my wife um, 10 dozen roses yesterday. Um, I needed to make up for not being there today, you know. Um, and uh, was thinking about roses and flowers and how beautiful flowers are. And then I got to my mother's house and I saw these. Um, a past poor relic of the real thing, right? Um, A world where everything was covered and coated in plastic uh, from our flowers to the furniture in my grandmother's living room thanks to the Jerry Curl era of the late 70s into the early 90s. (laughs) But, But I was thinking about these two flowers and how similar they are, right? They both sort of look like flowers and they're both have color and They got some green in them, right? But if we look at these two flowers, these two flowers are different. They're they're very different, right? And so the question here this morning is, is this flower alive? No, that flower's not alive. Is this flower alive? No, it's not. This flower started dying the second it was cut off from from its root. Both of these flowers are dead, 
Just this one hadn't caught up yet. Both of these flowers have no life. It's just this one looks prettier. Here's the risk we run if we choose not to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We can look at everybody else like they're a dead plastic flower while ignoring the fact that we ourselves are still dead. And the final words of this pericope teach us and give us the hard word here this morning. Look in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says that your love and your prayer of your enemies signifies that you're children of God because the way you treat believers and non-believers alike is akin to God's common grace falling on believers and non-believers alike, that you're to treat and practice what you preach in treating enemies the similar ways that you treat your friends. Why? Because you must be perfect. That word there, perfect, comes from that great Hebrew word, that Hebrew cognate, where we get our word shalom. It means whole. It's wholeness. You must be whole. But there's a problem. If you're here and you're listening to this sermon like I am, and if you've been sliced up on the inside like I have been all week, then you get to this part, and this is the proverbial dagger in the text. I have not liked this at all up until this point. And then in verse 48, I really don't like this because I can't do any of this by myself. I can't love my enemies and I can't pray for my enemies by myself. I cannot do it. To which the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount and these these passages here is that that's the point. You can't do it by yourself. You need something outside of yourself to empower you to walk faithfully the road that Jesus has called you to. Quite simply, what you need is a greater righteousness. Jesus is calling us to be like him in two primary ways. One is a greater righteousness. And this greater righteousness is a righteousness that is conferred. It's a righteousness that's conferred. Let me illustrate this using one of my favorite pieces of pop culture of all time. It's Harry Potter. And I just got to tell y'all, man, y'all going to get tired of Harry Potter references. I'm just going to be honest, right? I love Harry Potter. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But early on in in the books, Harry is gifted with a very special garment, it's a garment that's passed down from his father and from his father's fathers onto Harry. What is that garment? Cloak of invisibility. I'm glad I'm not alone. So here's a question. So Harry gets this cloak that later on in the narratives we find is uh, indefatigable. It's unbeatable. It's, um, it's, it's perfect, right? So if Harry takes this cloak of inv- invisibility and puts the cloak on, can you see Harry? No. But if Harry takes the cloak off, can you see Harry? What's up? So if Harry puts it on again, can you see Harry? No. But if he takes it off, can you see him? The, the cloak grants an invisibility that is impervious to sight, meaning that that cloak that was conferred upon him grants him privileges he doesn't have without it. When you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus and your trust is in the finished work of Christ and not yours... Christ confers his own righteousness upon you like a garment. 
Whereupon wearing that garment, you now are imbued with privileges that you did not previously have. Namely, you're right with God and empowered to represent God on this earth. There is a greater righteousness that is the product of faith in Christ Jesus, and Jesus is inviting us into becoming more like him. Jesus, hear me, hear me, hear me. Jesus is inviting us to become more like him because unfortunately too many of us spend more time with Mark Zuckerberg than we do with Jesus. We spend more time with Don Lemon than we do with Jesus. We spend more time with Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity than we do with Jesus. And what this world does not need is syncretism of the gospel with political or ideological thinking. What we need is a gospel born out of this savior. What we need is our hearts to have a decoupling from the idols that govern us and prevent us from loving our enemy. And let me just say this. If we are influenced by any area more than the Bible, we will be drawn not to show compassion, not to show grace, not to love or to pray for our enemies, but we will be very comfortable in our hates. And how can we say that we love Jesus, who even while we were sinners, died for us if we will not love and pray for our enemies? And so here's the call. The call is a call to wholeheartedness. It's a call to shalom. What is a Christian if he or she is not a representation of Jesus on earth before men? So that in you, representing Jesus to men, that we might show people what God is like. That we might show our enemies what God is like. That we might invite women and men into a narrative that says, maybe you thought Jesus was like this, but let me take you to the scriptures. Let me show you what he's really like. Our church, again, this is for us. This ain't for nobody else. This is for us. We have an incredible opportunity. We have an incredible opportunity to love as Jesus has loved. And we have an incredible opportunity to look upon our neighbor, mask or maskless, with so much grace and so much compassion and so much trust that our bonds of peace is not the product. I want you to hear me. Unity is not the product of God bibbidi-boppidi-booing us and teaching us all to get along. That's not what unity is. The church is unified by the blood of Christ. We just got to start living like it. But we have a heart issue, which is why we need Jesus. Last thing. At, at this point in sermons like this, everybody's feeling like mad convicted. Like convicted. I just done tap danced all over your toes and I don't even know what the Holy Spirit doing to y'all. But it's good because I want you to know that if you're hearing this, there is grace for you. There is so much grace for you. 
kindness beyond measure, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, an invitation into the heart of God where no amount of sin can push you away from God. At every single turn, he's chasing after you and laughing because it is his delight to catch up and to bring you to himself. And if we're Bible people, and the Bible tells us that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, then that's what, after repentance, that's what we need to believe here this morning. Amen? Every time God's word is open, it demands a response. And as such, we would be wise to sit and to listen and to pay attention to the ways in which the spirit of God is leading us. So let's take the next 30 to 60 seconds to hear from the Lord and to be obedient to the ways and the places in which he's leading us to live out and to work out this word in our lives. Father in heaven, this is a hard word that I do not like, and yet you've written it for our good and for the good of the world, and it is holy, it is right, and it is infallible. And Father, I confess that I do not possess the ability within myself to obey. I need your help. Lord, as you led me this week to make an account right with an enemy of mine, I pray that you would lead us to soft hearts and compassion that would lead us not into a place where we revel and bask in our hatreds and in our anger against those who persecute us and those we classify as enemies, but rather, Father, would we pray for them as you prayed for us. And even now, the book of Hebrews says, are ever interceding at the right hand of the Father for us right now. Come and make our hearts glad, O Lord, by the absolution found in the forgiving presence of a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and with a spirit who comes to not only convict but to comfort. For those who have been convicted, Lord, I pray you comfort us. And for those who are comfortable, in their sin, would you convict them? Father, all of this to create one church under one shepherd, one body, under one Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus himself. Would you come and do this in and through us, we ask. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people say it. Amen. Amen.